This is Paris. This is Chuck D. This is Flavor Flav, boy. And you're in tune to 91.1 FM, WGDR. Plainfield. We're going to change the system. I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Think about it. That's the way it was, and that's the way it is, and it's always changing, and it is always the same. How's that for psychedelic? We are all seekers after truth. This, 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 this is a special magic. There's nothing to worry about. There's nothing to fear. I am a traveler. A wanderer. It's always changing and it is always the same. The world is listening.
Today, in honor of the impeachment hearings and Republican politicians, we'll begin the show with a great clip from George Carlin addressing the National Press Club on politicians and language. And then we'll hear an interview I did with Leah Greenberg, a former congressional staffer and co-founder of Indivisible, a grassroots political movement that has swept the nation following the Trump election. Leah Greenberg is also the co-author of We Are Indivisible, a blueprint for democracy after Trump. And then after that, it'll be kind of a free-for-all audio collage done by the seat of my pants. So stay tuned. Having uh, somewhat successfully established my press credentials, and because you and I have at least one thing in common, which is that all of us deal with language all the time, I thought it might be nice today for me to come to you with uh, some of my language complaints. Certainly not to blame them on you, although of course you are implicated. <laughs> and not that you can help it. I mean, the problem is really with the people you cover. The politicians, the celebrities, and the lawyers. And although their level of insincerity is astonishing, it's still kind of fun to hear them talk. In particular, it's fun to listen to Washington talk. Whenever the issue of term limits comes up, I always tell people the only term limits I'm interested in would be to limit some of the terms used by politicians. They speak, of course, with great caution because they must take care not to actually say anything. Proof of this, according to their own words, is that they don't actually say things, they indicate them. As I indicated yesterday, and as the president indicated to me, but sometimes they don't indicate, they suggest. Let me suggest that as I indicated yesterday, I haven't determined that yet. See, they don't decide, they determine. If it's a really serious matter, they make a judgment. I haven't made a judgment on that yet. When the hearings are concluded, I will make a judgment, or I might make an assessment. I'm not sure. I haven't determined that yet. But when I do, I will advise you. They don't tell, they advise. I advised him that I had made a judgment. Thus far, he hasn't responded. They don't answer, they respond. He hasn't responded to my initiative. An initiative is an idea that isn't going anywhere. When he responds to my initiative, I will review his response, take a position, and make a recommendation. See, they don't read, they review, they don't have opinions, they take positions, and they don't give advice, they make recommendations. And so, at long last, after each has responded to the other's initiatives, and each has reviewed the other's responses, and everyone has taken a position, made a judgment, and offered a recommendation, now they have to do something. But that would be much too direct. So instead, they address the problem. We're addressing the problem and we'll soon be proceeding. That's a big activity here in Washington. Proceeding. They're always proceeding or moving forward. A lot of that goes on. Senator, have you solved that problem? Well, we're moving forward on that. And when they're not moving forward, they're moving something else forward. 
such as the process. We have to move the process forward so we can implement the provisions of the initiative in order to meet these challenges. No one has problems anymore. Challenges. That's why we need people who can make the tough decisions. Tough decisions like how much soft money can I expect to collect in exchange for my core values? <laughs> so that... So that I can continue my work in government. Of course, no politician would admit to such a lowly station as working in government, serving the nation. I'm serving the nation. Another favorite distortion is public service. I'm in public service. I like America, don't you? The food is great, but the public service is terrible. Now, folks, a question for you. Do you think... It's possible that one of these politicians, whose judgment is so poor that he honestly thinks of himself as serving the nation, might occasionally be expected to indulge in a little patriotism? Huh? What do you think? <laughs> well, of course, not only is it possible, it's inevitable, and that's when he's at his very best. That's when he trots out the really good stuff all across this great land of ours, the greatest nation on earth, the greatest nation in the history of the world. And in times of military crisis, you can be sure that someone in a suit in this town will eventually plant himself in front of a camera and carry on a great deal about the most powerful nation on the face of the earth. <laughs> now, normally, during peacetime, the politicians will refer to people in the military as our young men and women stationed around the world. But in wartime, they quickly become our brave young fighting men and women stationed halfway around the world in places whose names they can't pronounce, wondering if they'll ever see their loved ones again. <laughs> for added emotional impact, sons and daughters can always be substituted for men and women. And so I think we can sum this up by saying that where the military is concerned, the extent of a politician's insincerity can be measured by how far around the world our, station, our soldiers are stationed and whether or not any of them can pronounce it. <laughs> Incidentally, another way of expressing this sentiment is to say we're sending our young men and women to places the average American can't find on a map. I've always thought it was kind of funny and somewhat out of character for a politician to go out of his way to point out the low level of American intelligence <laughs> when indeed his very job depends upon it. It would seem to fly in the face of that other rhetorical standby of theirs. The American people are a lot smarter than they're given credit for. This is said with a straight face, although it is obvious, of course, that the proposition is being stated precisely backwards. But, but the politicians, God bless them, or something like that, they're at their most entertaining when they're in trouble. When they're in trouble, their explanations usually begin simply with words like miscommunication. What did you do wrong, Senator? Well, it was a miscommunication. Or I was quoted out of context. Better yet, and more ironic, they twisted my words. Such a nice touch. A person who routinely spends his days torturing the language complains, they twisted my words. <laughs> then... As the controversy continues to heat up, he moves to his next level of complaint. The whole thing has been blown out of proportion. The whole, it's always the whole thing. Apparently, no one has ever claimed that only a small portion of something was blown out of proportion. Has to be the whole thing. That's because now he's feeling the heat. And so, as time passes and more evidence comes in, he suddenly changes directions and tells us, 
We're trying to get to the bottom of this. Now he's on the side of law and order. Jiu-jitsu, really. We're, we're trying to get to the bottom of this so we can get the facts out to the American people. That's always a nice touch, American people. In fact, at this point, he might even say, I'm willing to trust in the fairness of the American people. Clearly, he's preparing us for something. <laughs> and so, when finally all the facts come out and our subject seems quite guilty, he employs that sublime use of the passive voice, mistakes were made. <laughs> mistakes were made, don't look at me. Probably someone in my office. <laughs> Things are moving faster now. Mistakes were made is rapidly overtaken by there is no evidence. No one has proven anything. Eventually I will be exonerated. I have faith in the American judicial system. And that certain sign that things are closing in, whatever happened to innocent until proven guilty? Whatever happened? Well, nah, yeah. Well, he's about to find out. And we know this must be true because the next thing we hear from him is, I just want to put this thing behind me and get on with my life. I just want to put this behind me. That's an expression we hear a lot these days in all walks of life. From people in all walks of life, usually the person in question has committed some unspeakable act. Yes, it's true, I strangled my wife, shot the triplets, set fire to the house, and sold my young son to an old man on the train. But now, I just want to put this thing behind me. That's, that's the problem in this country. Too many people getting on with their lives. I think what we really need more of is ritual suicide. You know? Never mind the press conferences. Get the big knife out of the drawer. Personally, what I want to do is to put this, I want to put this thing behind me and get on with my life, thing behind me and get on with my life. I'll repeat that for you. Personally, I want to put, I want to put this, I want to put this thing behind me and get on with my life, thing behind me and get on with my life. And just to round out this section, let's hope there's a special place in hell reserved for those who have recently decided to take responsibility for their actions. That's the big thing now, taking responsibility for your actions, like it's a recent discovery, you know. He's taking responsibility for his actions. Well, isn't that wonderful? Ask him if he's willing to take responsibility for my actions, along with my alimony, my car payments, and my gambling debts. That was George Carlin at the National Press Club. My guest is Leah Greenberg. She's a former congressional staffer and co-founder of Indivisible, a grassroots political movement that has swept the nation. And she's also the co-author of We Are Indivisible, a blueprint for democracy after Trump. Leah Greenberg, welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. So first off, this is a wonderful book. I actually read the whole thing and took lots of notes. It's a sober analysis of our current state of American democracy, or what's left of it, 
and what we're up against. And it also provides a realistic blueprint for the kind of political reform that's necessary to save our fledgling American democracy. And I say this as a longtime jaded observer of our political system since Reagan times. Well, thank you. Thank you. That's, we wanted it to be accessible and inspiring and also a, cold, a hard look at what, where we are right now. So we appreciate that it, that all comes through. Yeah, it really does. I have a great appreciation for this. Now, in our Pledge of Allegiance, it states, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. How has our American democracy gone so far off the rails? We wrote this book because we got active building this indivisible movement in response to Donald Trump, but we recognize that Donald Trump is a symptom. He is not the problem. If we had a healthy democratic society, it would have rejected Donald Trump the same way that a healthy body rejects a virus. That didn't happen. It has not been happening. And so we've got to actually look at what has made our body so unhealthy. And the reality is there has been a multi-decades-long campaign by reactionary Republican elites to rig the rules of the game, to make our democracy less reflective of the voices of the people and more reflective of their big donors. And it's not an accident, right? They know that in a more diverse and more unequal society, their agenda is not popular and they're going to lose. And that's why they have no intention of having a fair fight. And so, you know, they are using voter suppression, they are using gerrymandering, they are taking control of the federal courts by stealing Supreme Court seats. They are in a thousand ways around the country working very hard to change the rules so that they can stay in power. And we have to take on the fundamental ways in which our democracy is being broken if we're going to actually, in you know, the future, prevent the next Trump. Could you lay out where we are right now and where we're headed if we don't take action right away? Well, where we are right now is uh, we are currently attempting to impeach the president. It is very likely that House Democrats will vote to impeach Donald Trump and it'll go to the Senate, where Donald Trump's iron control over the Republican Party makes it very unlikely that he will actually be convicted and removed from office. Those folks are up for re-election in 2020, and hopefully their constituents will hold them accountable for being rubber stamp enablers of Donald Trump. Hopefully, we will build the kind of movement that can get Donald Trump out of office. And at that point, we're going to face this question. What do we do? How do we avoid the next Trump? And the point of the book is we actually have the ideas ready to go. What we need is the people power behind it to demand it. We can make our democracy more functional, more effective, more representative with 50 votes in the Senate on day one of a new Democratic presidential administration. We can smash voter suppression. We can end gerrymandering. We can make D.C. a state and demand self-determination for Puerto Rico. We can get rid of the filibuster, which blocks really crucial progressive legislation. And, you know, we can take on the big tech companies that are creating such harmful fake news and media effects. All these things are possible, but they don't happen unless people are actually making their elected officials do it, because that's how political pressure works. So how do we do that? How do we do that? Well, the rest of the book is a guide for how you do that. So the core principle of indivisible as a movement is you are a constituent, and that means you have power, because your elected officials, they wake up every day thinking about how they're going to get reelected. And... Because of that, they care a lot about what you think and what you do. So if you organize locally, if you bring together like-minded people, if you focus on your own elected officials, if you pay attention to what they're doing and you let them know how you feel about it, 
and you organize the kind of local pressure that starts to affect their thinking, then you can change what's politically possible. And we know that because we've seen it happen over the last several years. We've seen volunteer communities of people hold their elected officials accountable, help to either make them vote the way they want or drive them out of office. We know this is a winning playbook, and uh, we want to make sure as many people replicate it as possible. I would love for you to talk about how this indivisible movement began. So the indivisible movement got started shortly after the 2016 election. I and my husband Ezra, who is my co-author and fellow co-executive director, were both former congressional staff. We had worked in Congress during the early years of the Obama administration, where we'd seen the rise of the Tea Party. And shortly after the 2016 election, when we were going through the stages of grief, like a lot of other people, and seeing people who'd never been politically involved before looking for ways to take action and make a difference, we went back to those years. We took the lessons that we'd learned from watching the Tea Party, and we turned them into a how-to manual. We called it Indivisible, a practical guide to resisting the Trump administration. And we put it on the Internet as a Google Doc, and it promptly went viral and prompted the formation of thousands of local indivisible groups all over the country. These are volunteer communities led by folks who are outraged by Trump, dedicated to resisting him, dedicated to making sure that his policy agenda failed and that he himself is a one-term president, and that ultimately we replace him with someone who is better and who is going to deliver progressive change for this country. Now, We've been organizing with indivisible leaders and building out an organization to support them over the last three years. And we want to continue to spread the word so that people understand that this is possible for them, too. I would love for you to give an example of one of the victories that indivisible actually manifested. Sure. Well, the nature of political victories is that you're never going to be able to say, I did this and nobody else did. Because in a movement, in progressive politics, it's all of us pushing together that makes a difference. But I think one of the crucial victories of the Trump years has been the fight to preserve the Affordable Care Act. Now, when Donald Trump was elected, the assumption in Washington was that the Affordable Care Act would be gone on day one of the Trump administration. And that didn't happen. And it didn't happen not because of what was going on in Washington. It didn't happen because there was outrage, there was pressure, there was visible public demands on representatives in the reddest of red districts all over the country saying, you know, if you get rid of the Affordable Care Act, I will be dead or bankrupt. And that didn't happen just organically. It happened through organizing. Right after Trump was elected, people brought together communities in all these places, indivisible Ozarks in Arizona, indivisible Huntsville in Alabama, too many indivisible groups to name in Arizona and Maine. These folks were organizing in their communities. They were showing up at town halls and making sure that elected officials were hearing from them. And they changed the political game. They turned the single largest priority of the Unified Republican Party into a political liability in the course of about six months. And ultimately, Republicans were not able to repeal the Affordable Care Act. Three years later, it is the law of the land, battered as it may be. And Democrats are able to run on it because, frankly, it turned out that getting rid of people's health care is an unpopular thing. And especially when they are demanding to hear directly from you, it's a tough case for Republicans to make. A moment ago, you talked about getting Democratic progressive agendas passed. And the problem is that many Democrats are not progressive or they're too spineless or afraid to stand up for real progressive values and policies which I think brings us to this current divide in the Democratic Party during this primary cycle. 
So I'd love for you to talk about the consequences of nominating a quote-unquote safe or quote-unquote electable candidate. Well, first, let me say that while Indivisible is affirmatively working to elect Democrats, we also believe that it's crucial to build progressive power independent of the Democratic Party. There's a reason that people didn't react in 2016 with shock and horror by just going to join their local Democratic Party, and it's because they recognize that that independence is really important, that a strong Democratic Party is one that's accountable to its values and that you've got to build the power to actually hold it accountable to its values. And so some of the best organizing that we've seen over the last couple of years has been directed not at Republicans, but at making sure that Democrats actually stand true to their own values. Now, in the presidential cycle, I think we have to face the fact that the Democratic Party has a long history of trying to, and Democratic voters even, have a long history of trying to choose the most electable candidate and then losing the election, right? It's just the reality that nobody actually knows who the most electable candidate is. Four years ago, Republican elites were tearing their hair out because they were like, well, Donald Trump certainly is not electable. And look where we are now. The reality is people can't predict this stuff. But what you can predict is who inspires you. And so the message that we've been giving to our folks and the message that we're hearing back is, you know, you've got to focus on not like who you think that a mythical voter in a state you've never been to might want in a year from now. You've got to focus on who feels real, who makes you excited, because the chances are they will excite other people too. Well, I definitely feel that way about it. You talk about in the book how the Republicans in the past, even as a minority, have been able to stop meaningful democratic reforms Let's say Trump is voted out of office in 2020 and the Democrats gain a majority in the Senate and increase their majority in the House. Then what? Well, this is a big part of our book. What we think needs to happen is a full-fledged commitment to make our democracy more functional and more inclusive. That's ending voter suppression and gerrymandering. That's expanding statehood for D.C. That is ending the filibuster. That is, you know, a lot of work to take on and create a functional media ecosystem. That's universal voter enfranchisement. All of these things are possible, and they're actually necessary preconditions for a lot of the policy changes that we care the most about, because fundamentally, we're just not able to make or sustain progressive change as long as the system is this badly broken. Now, that's the first step, of course, because the next thing we need to do is pass the kinds of policies that change people's lives, everything from taking on climate change to gun violence prevention. We have to go forward and show people why, why this kind of governance actually will make a difference in their lives. Yes, but Democrats in the past have tried to implement democratic reforms, and they were stymied by Republican minorities. What makes you believe that we can do it this time? Well, I would actually say that we've got this kind of fundamental imbalance, which is that usually when Democrats get elected, they try to pass some of the major policies that they ran on. And usually when Republicans get elected, they change the rules to stay in power, and then they go after those Democratic policies. You see, this a great example of this is Wisconsin, where Scott Walker was elected in 2010, immediately took out the labor unions, which were a critical backer of Democratic power in Wisconsin, and then was able to enact a broader, regressive Republican agenda. That is the kind of trick that Republicans pull regularly, where they are approaching their policies with an eye towards how do we stay in power, and then how do we use that power to end Democratic policy priorities. And so, from our perspective, we can't keep playing that same game. We have to actually recognize that 
our commitments have to be to game-changing democracy reforms that make our system more functional, and then we can pass the policies that we want and care about. Okay, so you briefly alluded to your six-point agenda to restore democracy, which included eliminating the filibuster, working on the Senate, the House, the courts, voting, and also the media. Um, that's a lot to cover. Is that a realistic goal? Well, look, nothing is a realistic goal in the classical sense unless it actually has people behind it. And what we believe is that we're on the verge of a historic potential era of transformation. It's completely normal in historical terms for a moment of mass corruption and law-breaking and just general devastation to our, our rules and norms of governance to be followed by an era of reform. And what we're trying to say is we need that era of reform because fundamentally all of the problems that we're seeing are reflections of this deeper issue, which is that our democracy is not working for people. One of the great victories that I was so impressed about was the work of indivisible groups all over the nation, which actually got many Republicans to decide to retire. Considering the Republicans' tenacity to to behave badly, how what was it that what did it take to get them to actually you know run for the hills? Well, I'd start a little bit earlier. I would say a lot of indivisible groups started off working to try and publicly hold their elected officials accountable. And a lot of Republicans responded by just trying to hide and hope that they would go away. You know, they didn't want to answer any questions about the Muslim ban. They didn't want to answer any questions about repealing the Affordable Care Act. They didn't want to, you know, be on the record on anything related to Donald Trump. And so they just tried to avoid public events for a long time. Now, that can work when you are recently elected, but it does not work when you have to run for office. You have to go outside. You have to ask people for your vote. You have to show up to events. You have to deal with the fact that some people have been waiting to talk to you for a long time. And so what we saw all over the country was, you know, you had these elected officials who kind of went into hiding in January or February of 2017. And then by September or so, they were looking around and they were thinking, oh, yikes, I am not sure that I am going to be able to, <laughs> I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to run for office if I'm keeping this up. And a lot of them decided to retire at that point. One of my favorite quotes is from an indivisible leader in East Tennessee. Her member of Congress retired in 2018. And what she said was, well, we changed his job and then he decided he didn't want his job anymore. And that's the power of constituent pressure. Mm -hmm. So we're going through this impeachment process. What are your thoughts on how it's going to affect the indivisible movement and where we're hoping to go, considering that the Senate is very unlikely to uh, convict him. Well, I think that a lot of indivisible folks are happy to see House Democrats keep their promises and hold this administration accountable. I think that what we're experiencing as we move through impeachment is both that there's an enormous amount of information flying around, there's new headlines every day, and also the the underlying story is very clear. Trump has been, in a thousand different ways, subverting the office of the president to advance his own political and personal agenda. It's corruption, plain and simple. And what we need to do is make sure that we're telling a very clear story to the American people about the fact that this is corruption. This is the president using the office of the president for his own personal ends. And link that with an election narrative that's about whether Republicans are willing to actually hold him accountable or not. Because 
he is up in 2020, but so are a bunch of Republicans in states where Donald Trump is underwater. And so there need to be people outside of Cory Gardner's offices and outside of all of his events asking him, you know, is it okay to solicit foreign interference in elections? Is it okay to threaten witnesses? What do you have to say about all these things? How are you going to vote right now? And then we need to be making sure that that vote haunts him into the 2020 election cycle. Mm -hmm. So how can people get involved in this indivisible movement and participate in an effective way in restoring our democracy and bringing sanity to our politics? Well, one easy way to start is by joining your local indivisible group. If you go to indivisible.org, we have a map of indivisible groups all over the country, so you can look up your zip code, and if there's not one there, then we encourage you to start your own. But you can also pick up the book, which is really about fundamentally how you can make a difference and the fact that you don't need to be a professional political activist to have a huge impact on the political system. So we walk you through what that means, how you can get started, and what you can do with that power, and then what we can all achieve together to fix our democracy. Well, Leah Greenberg, I think this is a wonderful book. I'm so impressed. I don't think I've seen anything as effective and actually hopeful in a long, long time. So. I want to thank you so much for the work you're doing and for being a guest on the show. Thank you. Thank you. That was Leah Greenberg. She's a former congressional staffer and co-founder of Indivisible, a grassroots political movement that has swept the nation, and she's the co-author of We Are Indivisible, a blueprint for democracy after Trump. Out of the sun's gates come little girls in dresses of fire wearing pigtails of braided smoke which stem from their moon-cratered scalps, the glowing seeds of a nightly garden that will blossom into full moons regardless of the sun, veil the night in the seven names of the wind through the tales of their wind-blown fathers. Who will father these mothers of light, and what will become of me, children of the night? Only some will star the sky, only believers in death will die. And fathers must feather the wings of women, 
For the unfeathered masses dangle ridiculous carrying crosses to phallic filled tombs. The future sells silence through blood-rivered wombs that ripple with riddles of cows and spoons and birth moons, earths and suns centered at noon. She buries her eggs in the soil and plants her feet in the sky. Soil seeds the circus of carrots and clowns and minstrels show our desires. And here I stand, court gesturing infinity, fetal fisted for revolution, but open hands birth humility. Now what is the density of an egoless planet? Must my spine be aligned to sprout wings? I'm slouched in the sling steps and tangled with gang reps by my orbit rainbow Saturn's rings, mystical elliptical presto polaris karmic flame future with Saturn and Aries, and now I'm a fish called father with gills type dizzy, blowing blood and liquid lullabies through the spine of time to tranquilize the nervous system's defeat. At the feet of the river, the children are gathered or rather buried in the mass gravesite of the night. They are the seeds of light planted in the sky, but the night and skies are meaningless to their unearthly eyes. They are our children playing chess on the sunburnt backs of one-eyed turtles, checkmating a lifetime slow crawl to enlightenment, cashing in their crown and glory from magic and contradiction. The children of fiction, born of semen-filled crosses thrust in cavalry's mound with memories of Mignana's millennium. The gravity of the pendulum, the inscription of the grail, the rumors of one famine and diseases and storms of hell all hail the new beginning, behold the winter's end. Bring on the puppets and dragons as the ceremonies begin, for they have come to shatter time and bring back the dead newborn, an army of me, bearing change in the front line and shadows in the field mines, the wilderness and the lights in the city. I have seen them. A tumultuous army of bastards and beggars, madmen and idiots, witches and harlots, dancers and lunatics, singers and sinners, losers and lovers, students and teachers, poets and priests, orbiting the realm of the ordinary through the ordinance of those ordained by the beast. These are our children, love-laden life-lanterns, casting shadows that shepherd the flocks, crying wolf in the moons full at sirens of love's lull, the offspring of Gibraltar's rock. Who will deny him and thrice crows the cock? Will it be you, Peter, decked into mere's denial, masquerading in matter, over-minded, under-trialed? Self is a servant to serpent with wings. Three is the beginning of all things. Triangles to rectangle your wings. Let fission blur not your deservings. Pile stone unearth ancient learnings. See self as a ghost of your servings. If you're serving the father, there's no son without mother. Parent bodies discover water bodies and drown. Wade me in the water till Atlantis is found. On the seas of ourself, I'm starfish and unbound. Heard the name of that mound is Stone Mountain. Underwater volcanoes erupt, water fountains of youth. Lest this carnal equation cancel out wind and truth. Throw me beyond some time and drench me waterproof. Let leaves drop forever, rain sunsets on my roof. As I sit on the front porch of my sanity, deciphering hand bones to Van Gogh. This vanity, oiled egos, canvas and frame to be reborn, unborn, unburied, unnamed. A reflection through a blood-stained glass window of souls gone yellow around the edges. Carbonated dreams and blurred daily lives. But let family bring focus. Out of swamps blossom lotus. The muddy water blue daughters of infinity. Gravity we water 
their bodies bodhisattvas our serenity as we rise with the tides towards divinity and she will be raised by wolves just below the masonry Dixon line where eagles noose the misuse of Osiris's omega papyruses and their claws clenched so that the vultures of our memories may feast upon the remedies of ancient laws lynched and flop to the treetops of the forethoughts we have forgotten. Yes, silence will be begotten of the wind. The silver eyes of the darkness are her friends. They sometimes plant forever in their dens. On the mountainside, but sometimes now and then, in between the rise and set of you and I, may blue visions know the depths of liquid skies. And some ask me if she cries in the night, and there's a substance of her tears that drench the days with light. You better hope she do, because they're riddled with fur coats and painted faces dancing at the peripheries of perfection. They eat Chinese apples that stain their teeth red, and they'll cap a cosmos of chaos, and in a moment's notice the children are on the train, selling chocolates with their mothers in the background, fundraising their dreams from the dead. And the authors of order are corresponding catharsis and change the leaves of my needs from orange to red. I need fruit and vegetables, for these living things can feed the span of wings. Thus she was born to charter my flight into the blues of night. I am the darkness that precedes the light, a pupil of the sea's reflective sight. Notebook in hand, I footnote land and write, plot dot 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 and dot my eyes is right, and cast my lot amongst the children and the night. Some of us see what we know to be compared. How many predictions come to pass to share? Did they know not North Africa would erupt? But what they know, we don't know. That's how they keep it from us. So I burn the fire from the courts to the cops. Spiritual wealth is what fills my cups. I use this hip hop to profess my love. I am not a pop star. I'm a mother of King Fog. I'm a thief for the truth. Drugs. Getting lean off a liver in pub. You see me? They let the wrong one in when they let me in. You understand what I'm saying? Are you hearing me? I hear what they're saying with the undertone. They're telling me they want to erect to help and grow. They're so arrogant and so obvious. The truth pours from the ground in Fallujah. You see me? Sometimes you need to blaze up a fire. Let it be known for the record. Your honor. Before the case gets settled, your honor. Let the fire blaze in various ways. Be it the road, be it the stage. The flames stay high. The mystified, the mist they fly. Tell eyes, put an eye with the tell eye vision. Subliminal programs will hold hands in prison. Hold hands with the ism that truly ain't him. Paint him, taint him, decimate him. Reduced to a fraction of flesh and skin, we sing. With him for the culture, scope precisely. Devilish encryption could never subscribe, we. Word, power, and sound moving the molecule. Wonderful, wonderful with many degrees. Pepper decree, heat for reason. Heat the heathens, pagans flee. Cause these streets are paved with thievery. False prophets, false hope, false believery. Sometimes you need to blaze up a fire Let it be known for the record, your honor Sometimes you need to blaze up a fire Before the case gets settled, your honor Sometimes you need to play 
and let's form the battalion and stop battling for love of medallions. Covered blood laid up in an ambulance. Can't you see we're just Africans with new garms on but no hearts? Mannequins while Freemasons dance with the Vatican's speech. I'm so tired of imagining, so ready for riots to start happening. You and Obama, I'm not backing him. Sickening, they drop bombs, they sing hymns in church like God's gone. And these devils really think they're gonna win, but they're wrong, car. I stand strong on every song and pardon what if you don't know I am the unknown man with unknown plans right in my future with no hands unplugging mine from the enemies programs live life with benignity famalam stop the killing spree do you want to make money or history cause honestly hand on my heart no man in power's ever done a thing for me it's not a mystery it's liberties blaze up a fire to the victory go to the judge and the jury they don't know the half of the story say if i break it down slowly they can really see what i'm coming from i had this mark before them come live it down i never done when they showed up i never run stood firm for the conundrum
I'm sorry. I don't want to rule or conquer anyone. That's not my business. I should like to help everyone if possible. Jew, Gentile, black man, white. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. We don't want to hate and despise one another. In this world, there's room for everyone, and the good earth is rich and can provide for everyone. The way of life can be free and beautiful, but we have lost the way. Greed has poisoned men's souls, has barricaded the world with hate, has goose-stepped us into misery and bloodshed. We have developed speed, but we have shut ourselves in. Machinery that gives abundance has left us in want. Our knowledge has made us cynical, our cleverness hard and unkind. We think too much and feel too little. More than machinery, we need humanity. More than cleverness, we need kindness and gentleness. Without these qualities, life will be violent and all will be lost. The aeroplane and the radio have brought us closer together. The very nature of these inventions cries out for the goodness in men, cries out for universal brotherhood, for the unity of us all. Even now, my voice is reaching millions throughout the world, millions of despairing men, women, and little children, victims of a system that makes men torture and imprison innocent people. To those who can hear me, I say, do not despair. The misery that is now upon us is but the passing of greed, the bitterness of men who fear the way of human progress. The hate of men will pass, and they will die and the power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. I cried, for I didn't think it could be true. Now please, let me explain. This ugliness, this cruelty, this repulsiveness, it will all die out. And now, I cry for all that is beautiful. And so I was creating a lesson for students on Africa. We put all the problems of the world there, and I thought, let's let them solve it. I didn't want to lecture or have just book reading. I wanted to have them be immersed and learn the feeling of learning through their bodies. So I thought, well, I'd like to play games. I'll make something interactive. And so we made the game, and it has since evolved to a four-foot by four-foot by four-foot plexiglass structure and it has four plexiglass layers. There's an outer space layer with black holes and satellites and research satellites and asteroid mining. There's an air and space level with clouds, and big puffs of cotton we push around, and territorial airspaces and air forces, a ground and sea level with thousands of game pieces on it, even an undersea level with submarines and undersea mining. There are four countries around the board. Some are rich, some are poor. They have different assets, commercial and military. Each country has a cabinet. There's a prime minister, secretary of state, minister of defense, and a CFO or comptroller. There's a World Bank, arms dealers, and a United Nations. There's also a weather goddess who controls a random stock market and random weather. <laughs> That's not all. 
And then there's a 13-page crisis document with 50 interlocking problems so that if one thing changes, everything else changes. I throw them into this complex matrix. With all these crises, we have ethnic and minority tensions, we have chemical oils and nuclear spills, nuclear proliferation, there's environmental disasters, water rights disputes, breakaway republics, famine, endangered species, and global warming. If Al Gore is here, I'm going to send my fourth graders from Agna Heard and Venable School to you because they saw global warming in a week. <laughs> and they've done it several times, too. <laughs> There's a beautiful quote from Gandhi. He said, the fragrance always remains in the hand that gives the rose. Karma Kitchen is a restaurant that we started in Berkeley, California. And the unusual thing about it, there is no prices on the menu. At the end of the meal, guests receive a check for zero dollars. And there's a note that explains, this meal comes to you as a gift from someone who came before you. And if you wish to pay it forward, you can make a contribution for someone who comes after you. To be honest, when we started this, we didn't have any clue whether it was going to work or not. But the thing is, when you count on people to be generous, and you hold a context for that, and you create the systems for that, amazing things happen. It ignites something deep inside. So we had a volunteer once. He was a brilliant computer scientist. First time serving tables at Karma Kitchen. And he got the guest who was the most skeptical about this whole pay it forward idea. And so at the end of the meal, this guy calls the server over and gives him a hundred dollar bill and he says you trust me to pay it forward well here's the thing i trust you to bring me back the right change so this guy he goes to the back analytical guy so he's running through all the permutations and combinations of what he can do should he split it 50 50 should he try and calculate the average price of a meal what's he gonna do and then suddenly the answer comes to him and it came from within he walks back to the guest hands him the hundred dollar bill then opens his wallet, takes out another $20, and says, sir, here's your change. And in that moment, both the guest and the server got what Karma Kitchen was about. They experienced a mini transformation, and it had nothing to do with the money. When you drop that habitual mindset of quid pro quo, you drop into the flow of giftivism. Things start to move beyond the control of your personal ego. You don't know where the gift came from, you don't know where your contribution is going to go, but you trust in the cycle of the whole. And in that context, every contribution becomes an act of profound social trust. And that kind of trust creates a web of resilience. are not the strongest species on the planet.
We're not the fastest or maybe even the smartest. The one advantage we have is our ability to cooperate. To help each other out. We recognize ourselves in each other and we're programmed for compassion, for heroism, for love. And those things make us stronger, faster, and smarter. It's why we've survived. It's why we even want to survive. What do you desire? What makes you itch? What sort of a situation would you like I do this often in students. They come to me and say, well, we're getting out of college and we haven't the faintest idea what we want to do. So I always ask the question, what would you like to do if money were no object? How would you really enjoy spending your life? When we finally got down to something which the individual says he really wants to do, I will say to him, you do that. And forget the money because if you say that getting the money is the most important thing you will spend your life completely wasting your time you'll be doing things you don't like doing in order to go on living that is to go on doing things you don't like doing which is stupid better to have a short life that is full of what you like doing than a long life spent in a miserable way what we're doing is we're bringing up children and educating them to live the same sort of lives we're living in order that they may justify themselves and find satisfaction in life by bringing up their children to bring up their children to do the same things therefore it's so important to consider this question what do I desire When we was young, we was told the revolution would not be televised, so we had to improvise. So we put that on the net and watch it get digitalized. Right now, there is a kid finishing parents' evening in a heated discussion with his mother, saying, why does he have to study subjects he will never ever use in his life? And she will look at him blank-eyed, stifle a sigh, think for a second, and then lie. She'll say something along the lines of, you know to get a good job you need a good degree and these subjects will help you get a good degree. We never had this opportunity when I was younger. And he will reply, but you were younger a long time ago, weren't you mum? And she won't respond, although what he implies makes perfect sense that society's needs would have changed since she was 16. But she will ignore him, grip his hand more sternly than drag him to the car. But what she doesn't know is that she didn't ignore him just to shut him up. She didn't lie because they were just returning from parents' evening and an argument in the hallway would look bad on her resume. She won't lie because she just spent the last one hour convincing a stern-faced teacher that she would ensure that her child studies more at home. No, she would lie simply 
because she does not know any better herself. Although her whole adult life, she has never used or applied Pythagoras' theorem, pathetic fallacy, and still does not know the value of X. She will rely on society to tell her that her child, who has one of the sharpest minds in the school, is hyperactive, unfocused, easily distracted, and wayward. We all have different abilities, thought processes, experiences and genes. So why is a class full of individuals tested by the same means? So that means Sherelle thinks she's dumb because she couldn't do a couple of sums. And if this issue is not addressed properly, it then becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Then every school has the audacity to have a policy on equality. <laughs> the irony. Exams are society's methods of telling you what you're worth. But you can't let society tell you what you are Because it's the same society that tells you that abortion is wrong But then looks down on teenage parents With pastors that preach charity but own private jets Governments that preach peace but endorse wars I believe Miss Jefferson when she took me into the office And said that my exams would be imperative to my success Because we was taught to always follow when Miss Jefferson led But then I took Jefferson out of the equation And learned to think for myself I realised we was taught to always follow when Miss led Huh the irony. Test us with tests, but the finals are never final, because they never prepare us for the biggest test, which is survival. And what I suggest is fairly outlandish, so I do not expect everyone to understand this, except for the kids who knows what it feels like to be worth no more than that D or that A that you get on results day. And the ones whose best stories were never good enough for the English teacher, because apparently you missed out key literal techniques, did not follow the class plan, and the language was too informal for him to understand. But then he'd reference Hamlet and Macbeth, and you'd fight the urge to express your contempt by partially clenching your fist with only your medius finger left protruding in the middle of your hand and then asked if he was aware that Shakespeare was known as the innovator of slang or the kid at the back of the class who thinks why am I studying something that doesn't fuel my drive but then when confronted with a maths problem his eyes come alive so this one is for my generation the ones who found what they were looking for on Google the ones who followed their dreams on Twitter pictured their future on Instagram accepted destiny on Facebook this one's for my failures and my dropouts for my unemployed graduates My shop assistants, cleaners and cashiers with bigger dreams My self-employed entrepreneurs My world changers and my dream chasers Because the purpose of why I hate school but love education Was not to initiate a worldwide debate But to let them know that Whether 72 or 88 44 or 68 We will not let exam results decide our fate Peace elephants and donkeys romping in, in the playpen play and even though it wasn't their playpen no one else was allowed to play they made sure it was very expensive to play in their playpen yes children it was all a game but the elephants and donkeys made the rules and the rules were if you were not an elephant or a donkey maybe you were a buffalo or a bull or a swan or a snake well tough the elephants and donkeys made sure no one else was getting into their playpen. No way, no sir. They bickered, they fought, they bit each other on the ears, they kicked each other in the rumps, they trumpeted, they yee-hawed. All sound bites, you know. But some people thought, why don't we have whinnies? 
and barks and meows and oinks and hisses, but nope, no one else was allowed in their playpen. Now in other lands, there are bears and bulls and buffaloes and green things. No one was sure what the green things were, but anyway, people put up with that elephant and donkey crap for the longest time. You wouldn't believe how long. Well, mm, you probably would. People kept clamoring for change. Hey, brother, can you spare some change? But no, no change. What did we get? More elephants, more donkeys. Oh, democracy. Oh, poor democracy. Once lofty. With branches that spread and shaded all. Now whittled down to a sliver of a sound bite. Trumpets and hee-haws and heepits and trumpets and pulpits. You can't tell the difference anymore. What was once an elephant became, became an alecky. What was once a donkey became a dog fant. Yep, they were playing in their playpen by themselves for too darn long. So, remember, children, your vote counts. Well, it counts if you vote for you now. I know you're out there. I can feel you now. I know that you're afraid. You're afraid of change. I don't know the future. I didn't come here to tell you how this is going to end. I came here to tell you how it's going to begin. I'm going to show you a world without rules and controls, without borders or boundaries. A world where anything is possible. Got feelings in your heart. Don't let fear of feeling fool you. What you see sets you apart. And there's nothing here to bind you. It's no way for life to start. Do you know that tonight the streets are? Tell no lies 